Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to the Living Free Show on 3CR Community Radio, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial. I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners of the land from which 3CR transmits, people-powered radio. Hi, I'm Bill, and each week on the Living Free Show, we showcase one of the recovery programs that assist those suffering directly or indirectly from addiction to drugs, alcohol, gambling and food. Our guests share their recovery story and highlight that shared experience saves lives. We recorded the show via Zoom during Melbourne's COVID-19 lockdown, number six. Today's guest is a compulsive gambler who's recovering with the help of Gamblers Anonymous. I'd like to welcome Max to the show. Hi, Max. Hi, mate. How are you? Good. Max, would you like to tell us a bit about yourself and how long you've been in Gamblers Anonymous before we start the broad interview? Yeah, I'm 26 years old, born and grew up in Melbourne. I've only found these GA meetings maybe 90 or so days ago. As it stands today, I've been abstained from gambling for 84 days. So I'm pretty early on in terms of my recovery and also, I guess, pretty early on in terms of my gambling career in comparison to a lot of people, I think, that that come through the meeting. So definitely one of the younger heads in the meetings at the moment, but um, I'm very thankful that I've found my way here. Yeah, I'm sure. Okay. Well, so we usually talk about growing up and family life and things that influenced you and things that may have, uh, I guess, influenced you to take the path you took with gambling. So do you want to tell us a bit about your early life and uh, you know, family? Yeah. I grew up as an only child and I had a single mother who was always really great and, and she didn't suffer from any gambling-related illnesses. Now, in hindsight, sort of where she stands today, I could probably say that she would benefit from alcohol in anonymous meetings. But gambling was a learned behaviour from her father to me, who was, I guess, like a surrogate dad for me. My dad was quite absent from my life. So I was really close with my grandfather and idolised him. And he was a big gambler. I guess from my earliest memories, when I would spend a lot of time at my grandparents' house, often have sleepovers there. I was reading form guides with him. He was always calling up TABs on his phone account, placing bets, always had the racing channel on. And I guess I never really thought all that much of it at that age. But now I think looking back, it's had quite a profound impact on me just because of how much I idolised him. And by the time I was 15, 16 years old, it was something that I thought was normal. It had become really normalised behaviour in my life. And obviously because I idolised him so much, I wanted to be good at it and wanted to know a lot about it. I wanted to be able to converse with him about it and that's all sort of where it began. And I guess you couple that with being a 15, 16-year-old boy at an all-boys school and um, maybe there were a bunch of kids that were in similar positions to me and they had influential people in their families that were also gamblers. But I just remember there being a big core group of us at school that were very fixated on gambling and were always out to prove I guess, that we were knowledgeable in whatever it was that we were betting on. So by the time I was probably 15, it was something that was 
really quite intertwined with my life and it may not have been the most important thing in my life then but it was definitely um something that I cared a lot about and, and invested a lot of time in then and, and that was just at 15. So did that impact your schooling? I don't know if it did I did pretty well at school um, I was quite studious I definitely wasted a lot of time gambling but it didn't have I guess a direct impact on my schooling it's one of those things now in hindsight I look back on it and I think oh wow I could have used that time a whole lot better but the thing about me was I was always um I always loved sport and I was always fixated on the numbers and the stats and any sport that I like or I gravitated towards I was looking heavily into things like statistics and knew every player's name and yeah I had I had my head wrapped around that sort of area so I think gambling just came naturally with that I and mean, it was something that I, I gambling was maybe like a tool that I used to showcase my knowledge of sport and my passion for it, but it get, I guess it just ended up catalyzing the problem. Yeah. So how early do you think you started actual gambling? I grew up in, in Brighton and there was a local TAB around the corner from my house and I, I would have been making trips there when I was 14, I think, and by the time I was 15, I was in there regularly using a fake ID. Did you get the fake ID just for gambling or for other things? Oh, I would have been for other things. Yeah. <laughs> There would have been alcohol involved and maybe even nightclubs at that age, but um, the gambling was one of the easier places to use it in, that's for sure. Yeah. So was it something you did socially or was it something you did individually? Definitely a bit of both. It was, um, it was considered cool, I think, when I first started, definitely within my peers anyway. It had like a bit of a cheeky aura attached to it because obviously we were underage and we knew that it was illegal and we couldn't be doing it. So I guess we all thought it was cool. But that didn't mean that I didn't do it in my own time when no one else was watching. By the time I was 15, 16, the patterns that I guess that were destroying me later in life, whereby I was living paycheck to paycheck, every dollar that I got my hands on, I'd spend on gambling. That was already still happening when I was 15. If I ran, if I got 10 bucks in my hand, I'd take that straight down to a TAB and start betting it. So, yeah, I think that some worrying patterns of behaviour were definitely still there. And um, in hindsight, I was definitely isolating myself even at that age, even though that it was something that would have started out socially. So did any of your friends perceive it as different or unusual what you were doing or was everybody doing it? Yeah, it was, it was, it was definitely normalised behaviour. And I think it just ultimately stems from our parents. And I think that... Gambling for people that were the age of um, me and my friend's parents, it was quite a normal thing. They would have grown up talking about it with their parents as well. So it was just something that no one tried to shelter from their kids. And everyone's parents, I guess, were doing it as well. So everyone was like, I don't know. It just, it just seemed like a very normal thing for everyone to be doing and talking about. It was almost strange if you weren't gambling every once in a while. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? So was it mainly on, you know, physical uh, activities, you know, uh, sport events? Yeah, I think so. For me and my friends, and they would have just been sport and the races as well. I was never really a fan, a fan of the races. I would still bet on it, but I knew nothing about it. So I could, um, could recognise that from a pretty young age. So I just tried to stick to my strengths, I guess. Not that it worked out any better. Yeah, it was, it was pretty much just that. No one was going to venues when we were younger. And 
using pokey machines, nothing like that. And even when I got older, that wasn't really my poison. It was more so just sport and horse racing, which um I think is arguably it was more dangerous for me anyway, because there's an element of reality to it and you can kid yourself into thinking that you're some kind of expert. I and mean, you listen to expert commentary around it and you think that they're like-minded individuals to yourself. So why can't you be deemed an expert? This sort of stuff. So it's all just fantasy as well. Yeah. Okay. At, at that age, how did you have enough to gamble? It's a good question. I always worked when I was young. I would have got my first job maybe 13 years old at a supermarket. Um, all the money that I earned when I was younger, working maybe one or two days a week, might not have all have gone to gambling, but like I, I wouldn't have saved a dollar. I always went out a lot with friends. By that, by that age, you're sort of drinking on weekends with your friends at your friends' houses. And if it wasn't probably alcohol, it would have been gambling. Also, at that age, when you're at school, I had no hesitation in asking my mum for money. And because I was an only child, she would have done anything for me, my mum. So anytime I asked, I sort of got. And I probably didn't have to explain myself all that often. So, yeah, it was, it was fueled by a couple of things. It was, it was probably both work and then handouts from my parents. And then, yeah, by that age, I'd, I had no concept of what the difference between disposable income and savings was. It was all just disposable in my mind. Yeah. So you mentioned your, your grandfather earlier. So did he take you to any venues? I'm not sure. I can't remember. I probably would have gone into venues with him when I was younger. I guess where it became quite learned was just me seeing Sky Racing on the TV for eight hours a day and just watching him repeatedly call up his phone betting accounts and putting bets on. I think that's where I would have vicariously learned the most through him. But yeah, I definitely would have gone to the venues with him as a young kid. I think that's why maybe I felt so comfortable going in there when I first started gambling. Yeah. So what about friendships then? It sounds like you had fairly strong friendships with your peers. Yeah. I always had a, a lot of friends growing up and the vast majority of them were like-minded. And I guess we all sort of enabled each other's behaviour. But, yeah, I had a strong friendship group. None of, but I don't think when we were, when we were younger, anyone, anyone had developed problems that anyone needed to tap someone on the shoulder and say, hey, mate, slow down. Um, I think we all just sort of told each other about the wins only, not the losses. If there was, if we were in a bad spot of bother, no one would say anything and cycle just continued, I guess. Yeah. So were you old enough to have internet accounts on your phone? Yeah, we probably weren't when we first had them, but they're still easy to get. I remember back then when I first got mine, all you have to do is click a box saying I'm 18 years old. Yeah, it wasn't too hard to get. To answer your question. Yeah. So did they provide you with incentives to gamble? I'm not sure. There was definitely like different agencies that had, I guess they'd give you like bonus bets if you on deposits or you accumulated points. Every dollar that you spent would get you a point and then they, you could cash them in for bonuses down the line. There were different features with different agencies that I guess were definitely luring and they definitely play a factor, especially in a young fella's mind. Um, when you're not earning that much money, you gravitate towards those sort of additional features that different agencies have, that's for sure. What about advertising? Advertising is a fairly strong medium for gambling right now. Mm -hmm. But did you find that that gave it, a, I guess, more of a social acceptance? 
Yeah, for sure. And it's probably not something that I consciously thought of at the time back then, but around that time when I was young, still in school, Sportsbet probably just started their major advertising push and, and they really focused on appealing to, I guess, um, young adolescents, people in their early 20s or um, around that 18-year-old mark with just stupid humour that really um, captivated that younger crowd. And that all just makes it seem more normalised, I guess. It just makes it seem like it's something that if you are that age and that is your humour that you should be doing and it just gives you that false sense of acceptance. But, yeah, advertising, one of those things where I look at now and a lot of people get frustrated when they say it makes them angry and almost triggers them a little bit. I just, it is what it is. I don't think that it's ever going to go away and I don't think that it's ever going to be outlawed or banished. So I think it's always going to be there. So I just sort of scoff at it now and just take it for what it is. I don't think that it um it doesn't affect me and I don't, I don't let it affect me. And I, even when I was young and I guess my opinions were able to be formed by this and stuff, it never really captivated me. I remember there was a lot of sports bet ads and, that wouldn't make me bet with sports bet. So it, it never had like a, a huge hold of me, the advertisement, but I just think that when you're seeing it and hearing it so much, it just makes you think that it's more normal and it just lets, it makes you think that everything that you're doing is okay and that you're supposed to be doing it, which is, I guess, the disappointing thing about it. And there'd be so many, so many kids that otherwise probably wouldn't find gambling or wouldn't think that gambling is such a normal thing that are affected by them. So it's disappointing in that respect. Yeah, it's, I, I just find them annoying myself. <laughs> you know, that just the um, immature humour and, and the winning, you know, this, this concept of winning all the time and, you know, when everybody knows that gambling, gambling isn't about winning, well, apart from the people who are selling it. Mm. They're winning, but everybody else is losing. So, yeah, deceptive advertising, I guess. Yeah. So uh, at what point did you diverge from your friends in your gambling? I think by the time I was 18, there was like a, at that point, I was pretty keen on like betting bigger amounts than what like the vast majority of my mates were. And I thought that I had like found some loopholes or like I thought, I just thought that I was, had a bit like high, more of a higher betting IQ than the, the majority of my friends. So that's when I probably started like being a little bit more secretive about the amounts that I was betting or how many times I was betting or the degree to which I was betting. It just all sort of changed about then when I was 18. And I'm not sure why. I think it also coupled that with like I've just finished school and as a, like an 18, 19-year-old kid, you just find yourself going out a lot more. You, people have started uni and yeah, your social life just sort of picks up and with that you need money and you're obviously not earning a lot of money at that age. So I just think that lure around gambling and potentially doubling or tripling what you have in your pocket just seemed a lot bigger. And Yeah, I think that at that point, that's when it became like a, a less of a social thing and, and more of a personal thing. Okay. Well, listen, we might take a short break. You're listening to The Living Free Show on 3CR, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. If you're interested in listening to one of our many podcasts, then you can head to your preferred podcast platform or just Google 3CR Living Free. On our webpage, you'll also find details about The Living Free Show and how you can contact us. 
Today I'm talking with Max and we're talking about compulsive gambling and his recovery through Gamblers Anonymous. So Max, before the break, we were talking about, you know, sort of leaving school and getting your license and turning 18 and things like that, which changed your life quite a bit. So you mentioned that you started going to more parties and things. So did that mean that you were having a more relationships? Yeah, I guess so. I think from like the point where it became a very individual behaviour, I was sort of in my life to the same degree probably for the best part of six to seven years. And I guess what's happening there is from like 18 to 24 to 25, you're trotting along through like your your adolescent period where there's university involved and then working part-time through university and then graduate and you get your first full-time job and you're not earning that much money and then you maybe change jobs, start earning a little bit more money. And then I guess throughout all those different stages, gambling was just sort of there in the background. There may have been one period or two periods throughout that seven years where maybe I didn't gamble for a couple of weeks and it wouldn't have been by choice. I wouldn't have been doing it because I wanted to stop. It would have been because I had no money or something like that. But at that point, throughout those years, I definitely didn't think that I had a problem. And it sort of ties into what I was saying earlier. I think that it was very normalised for me. I thought that I was just going to keep living my entire life and gambling was going to be a constant throughout it. And I thought that what would happen is I would start earning more money and that the bets that I placed wouldn't increase with that. And I'd be able to save money whilst also gambling as well. And I'd be able to talk about it with my friends and go to events or the better races or sporting events. And I just thought that it was always going to be there. Yeah, which is a little bit strange. Yeah. So how did it affect your work life if you're gambling and you had money problems? Did that lead you to do anything unusual? I'm not sure if I, my thoughts were definitely skewed. I didn't do anything unusual, but I was probably always scheming and looking for ways in which I would come up for lump sums of money. And like the reason being, it wasn't necessarily always put on bets, but because I was gambling, I just couldn't save. So if I ever ran into financial difficulty, if I, if I needed to pay card registration or buy a car or something like this, I would never have the money to do that. So I was always looking to run into big sums of cash. So illegal activity was probably always running through my head, whether it be selling drugs or committing some form of a crime. It was definitely always there and 100% would have been catalyzed by gambling. Yeah. So did you steal money? Did you do stuff like that? Yeah, I did. And um, it got to a point where I think I touched on it earlier that I would always get what I want from my mother. She would always end up giving me handouts and paying off fines or paying for things. And it was because I just, like I said, had no concept of saving money and every spare dollar I had, I'd I'd spend gambling. And it got to a point where gambling had become such a, a big escape for me. And I became incapable of dealing with emotions, I guess, without doing it. And I, I didn't really recognize this only until recently, but whether it be me going through a breakup or I guess like a tumultuous period in a relationship, if there'd been like a, a breach of trust or something like that that would hurt me emotionally, I would then cover that up with gambling. So I had a long-term partner, ended up, we broke up when I was about 24. And then I remember I stopped gambling there for a period of a couple of months because I thought that that's what that person would have wanted. And then after that couple of months, 
ended, started gambling again. I thought that I'd done a whole bunch of work on myself personally. I hadn't really done all that much. And then I found a new partner and things were going great. And then there were some things that went on in that relationship that I guess ultimately hurt me. And then my escape from that was gambling. So to numb the pain, all I would do was, was gamble more. And by this stage, I was working full time. I was earning money. Um, wasn't that good money. Definitely not good enough to, I guess, pay for the, the addiction that was bubbling up inside. So I started stealing money from my mother. I found access to her bank account. And whenever I needed a, a quick fix or an emotional release, I would just take money from there as I, as I pleased and would, I guess, relieve myself of any guilt or emotional tension that way. And it was just crazy. I just remember the, the whirlwind of emotion that I would get. I, I, I would be overcome with um, anxiety or sadness. And then the first thing that would pop into my head would be, oh, oh you've got to get on and, and put a bed on. And there'd be some form of sport that I was looking at that would have my attention. And then even before I'd even put the bed on, that scheming and planning on how I would trick my mother and make her sort of, maybe leave her phone on the bench or something and be in another room and how I would just find the time to intercept and get that avenue in and steal money. By that point, all the, the sadness that I was feeling was just completely gone. I mean, I was just fixated on, on the bet that I hadn't even put on yet. Then I'd um, get money, put a bet on. I'd tell myself that I'd never do it again and I'd be overcome with guilt. And it, it, was, it was tricky for me because I always loved my mum more than anything in the world. Obviously, I didn't have a father figure, so she did a lot for me growing up and we were extremely close. So I would be overcome with guilt and I'd be like, how could you do this to your own mother? She loves you so much and you love her so much. I, I was starting to hate myself. But then the bet hadn't even started at this point um, while I was feeling these feelings. And then as soon as I'd be checking scores live and realised that the bet was on, those feelings of guilt were washed away. I guess I'd just feel alive at that point in time and any problem that I had was just gone and then ultimately what would all nine times out of ten happen is that the vet would lose and then all those feelings would come back all at once whatever I was trying to escape from before I started scheming came back hit me ten times harder that guilt and anxiety that I'd feel from the act of stealing in itself um, would also hit me ten times harder and then of course the only way to wash those feelings out of my mind was to rinse and repeat the same cycle again so I think that went on for probably a good 12 months. So, yeah, I was, in a, I was in a dark, dark place, I guess, for the best part of 12 months while that was all going on. Yeah. Can I just ask, were you still in contact with your friends during this phase? Yeah, I was. By this stage, I'd, um, I'd moved out of home as well, so I was, like, living with a few friends. And I still kept in contact with a lot of my friends. I became a lot more closed off. I guess on the surface, I would have looked like I was, uh, for those that noticed, I think I would have looked a lot more unhappy and lifeless and unhealthy, but I didn't really give much away and I didn't open up to anyone about it. I kept it all pretty insulated. I think what came undone in the end is because I started asking friends for money as well and there were a multitude of excuses that came with them because what would happen was obviously I was still 
stealing money in this time, but it was not feasible for me to do that as much as my gambling habit needed me to. So in between doing that, I would also just ask friends for money and ask them to borrow something. I'd make up that I was I needed it for to buy some shares and I needed it right that instant or maybe I was paying off a credit card bill and I just needed them to do it before I got paid on a particular day. But it didn't matter what it was. My excuses were, um, they were always like quite believable. And I think that because I was quite a a strong presence in my friendship group and I've got a a bit of personality and charisma that there weren't many people that were willing to sort of ask the question of me or to tell me no or to ask me if I was all right. I think that they they might have felt a little bit intimidated by me even asking the question and felt like they had to do it. And so what ended up happening was I I just had quite a few friends by the end of it that were just enabling the behaviour and not sure if they knew. That's not really their responsibility to know I think that I would have been quite believable a lot of the things that I said but um yeah so I ended up in quite a spot of bother obviously with all the stealing as well and then there was more debt attached to it just for friends and yeah just um left me in quite a a dark place yeah so um what about relationships then you know you mentioned a couple but was it possible to have a relationship while you're going through this sort of internal turmoil no, I wasn't, but I ended up, I, I did. And I think that also enabled the behaviour for a lot longer because what happened towards the end of this turmoil was that I, I completely isolated myself from my friends. I owed half of the money and then the other half that could probably see something was going on. I didn't really want to see them. Then I spent the majority of the time with my partner, but um, my partner was going through some of her own personal struggles during this time. So she was probably a little bit more less, less capable of um, seeing my issues because she was so focused on her own. So I think it enabled the behaviour in the sense that I was able to get away with it for a lot longer. The relationship started dwindling away and my behaviour, I guess, had started causing it to self-destruct. I'd become like a completely different person. I was living some form of a lie, so to speak. I um, I wasn't honest with my partner about any of the gambling as far as she was concerned. I was probably earning better money than I let it out to believe. We were always going out for nice dinners. I was always buying her things, clothes. Um, we were going on holidays. So she probably thought that nothing was wrong or didn't suspect it as much because I put up, I guess, a big front to her. But on the inside, I was, was just a gambling machine that, stealing and finding any way that I could fund the habit just so that I could keep living that double life but yeah what ended up happening was because I was so dishonest with her and I was holding on to all this internal anguish I started getting increasingly more frustrated and angry and the person that I became was just a completely different person to who I guess she fell in love with and arguments started happening like spot fires my fuse was far shorter I was a lot more insecure about everything it didn't matter she made a comment that wasn't necessarily attacking me but if it was in a negative tone of voice I would insinuate it as an insult I just would have become intolerable our conversations lacked I guess the flair and intensity that they had at the start and they were very shut off I would have been on my phone a lot because obviously checking scores and and gambling. Yeah, all these things are just by the time that it became to boiling point, I guess, the relationship was sort of 
on its last legs. And I guess that all culminated with it got, it got to my birthday this year. And my partner had taken me out for a lunch and we came back and I ended up cracking the shits over something. I can't remember what it was, but we had a big argument over pretty much nothing. But like I said, my fuse was short and yeah, I just got angry and aggressive over nothing. And she was sort of crying, just looking at me saying, what's wrong? What is happening to you? And then at that point, I just sort of, I had nowhere else to run to, nowhere else to hide. I'd um, Half of my friends were already aware of what was going on. I'd opened up to them. My mum had already found out about me stealing money from her and she was aware of the issues. The only one that wasn't aware was my partner and then I just had to come clean to her as well and tell her everything that was going on. And I guess that was like a liberating moment in itself. And at that point, that was when all my cards were on the table and I knew that there was no more running for me to do and that I, I couldn't escape it anymore. And I had to fess up and own up to what I'd done. Yeah. So how did she take that? It's hard to say. She was definitely shocked. Like I said, I'd been living in like some form of a double life, I guess. And between dinners, clothes and holidays, she would have thought that everything on the surface was fine. So I guess it was, it hit her quite hard and she had to come back down to earth for a second. I think that she was um, in shock for quite a while. Even at the start, she was very proactive about helping me and, my partner actually pointed me towards the GA meetings and we did a couple of exercises where she, we would write down, I guess, the person that I wanted to be in life and, and the things that I valued and things like that to help steer me in a, in, on a better path. And I think one of the most confronting things that I've had to do was go through my bank accounts with her. We, at this point, we still kept our bank accounts separate, but we were saving towards common goals like a house. And then I'd obviously been lying about um, how far into that saving plan that I was. And I'll never forget opening up into um, the different bank accounts I had and the vast majority of them were negatives. And she just looked at me with like a puzzled look on my face. And I think she was just stunned for maybe quite for maybe a month but she was still supportive and I guess the, the goal was to get me on the right path. And then after about a month, I think it, it all became a little bit more real and that's when she started struggling um, a lot more than what I was by this point. I was sort of on the up and on a positive trajectory, but she's sort of been struggling ever since, but it's getting better. Okay, Wilson, we might take another short break there. You're listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned to hear the rest of your 3CR podcast. This is the Living Free Show on 3CR Digital Radio and live streaming on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. I'm talking with Max and we're talking about compulsive gambling and his recovery through Gamblers Anonymous. So Max, before the break, we were talking about the difficult discussions one has with a partner to expose your gambling. So, you know, you mentioned, I guess, her shock 
and her difficulty coping with the extremes of your gambling and the impact it was having on you and, and your shared life. So what was the next thing that you did that was heading towards changing that behaviour? By this stage, I was just at a complete loss. I was, I guess, in a really dark place, but only because I felt so helpless. I guess up to this point, I was still running away from everything and they'd finally caught up to me and I was in a considerable amount of debt at this stage and I thought that the vast majority of my friendships had been burned. I thought that my relationship with my mother was in tatters. I thought that my relationship with my partner was in tatters. Um, I thought that I was going to be abandoned by pretty much everyone in my life and I had no answers. So I remember this conversation with my partner where we were going through my bank account and there was no money in there. And then after that, that conversation, she made me um, pretty much get off my phone and start looking through Gamblers Anonymous meetings that were nearby. And I remember it was a Sunday night and we went through the meetings list and decided that I'd go to a Wednesday night meeting in Elson Week that week at 8 o'clock. I'd done, I'd had a, a psychologist that I saw, I guess, regularly or semi-regularly for the best part of three or four years. We didn't always speak about gambling, but there were a few times where the sessions were completely confined to gambling. But like I said, I, I, that was just a tool for me to make me feel like I was doing the work on myself and, and, and going about fixing it. But I'd walk out of those psychology appointments almost every single time and on my way out I'd be on my phone on a betting app figuring out the next thing that I was going to bet on so I knew that psychology appointments weren't going to be the answer and I not to think that I thought GA was going to be the answer because I didn't but at this point I really had nothing else that I thought would work and I think before I went to the GA meeting there was definitely an element a stigma attached to it I had um friends that were in um, other meetings for drugs and alcohol and I guess I compared myself to them I, I didn't think that I'd hit this rock bottom that they had that I'd seen them hit and I didn't think that I was um, fit for these meetings but that was obviously prejudice that I held and I really it was not an informed opinion I had no idea what the rooms were going to be like so I think um out of desperation, I ended up going to my first GA meeting because I had a lot of pressure from my partner to go. There was an ultimatum, like, if you ever gamble again, we won't be together. So there was that sort of um, that pressure that was, I guess, on me. And that was, that was probably more my motivation at the start in order to, to stay with my partner that I would um, at least look to perceive like I was stopping. So I went to that first meeting and I, I felt great. I um, remember I abstained for about three days, three or four days. I felt good and I carried those feelings away that I walked out of the meeting with. But then within three or four days, I was still gambling again. And that sort of guilt is unparalleled. There's nothing else that feels quite like it because by that stage, you've gone into the meetings, you've seen other people that are like-minded and you hear the, the emotion and you've made promises to the people around you and then the behaviour keeps going. So you feel really low at that point. And it was like that, I think, for maybe like two or three weeks. And then I just got sick of going into those meetings. And 
saying that I, instead of um, building on the day count, I think I just every time I'd go in there, it was either like, oh, Max, I haven't had a bed in five days or three days. And I, I just got sick of that. Like, made me angry, I guess, watching other people notch up consecutive days. And I was just like, oh, I'm just going to change now. Um, and then I made the conscious decision and the rest was history. When, when you say the conscious decision, what does that mean? I'm not sure. I just thought that um, the proven, I guess, method for abstaining was just doing regular meetings. So in my head at the start, I was just going to go to that same meeting every Wednesday night and abstain that way. But I realised pretty early on that, like, the feeling that you get after a meeting is completely different to uh, maybe six days after a meeting when it's sort of worn off and the proof was in the pudding. I'd done, done a couple of weeks where I followed the same cycle of abstaining for one or two or three days and then after four I was back into it. So I just decided that I was going to um, do a meeting every day and I committed to 90 meetings in 90 days. And pretty early on I just recognised that that was the recipe for me anyway, and especially in those early days, I just realised that that was, that was what I needed to be doing to give myself the best chance. And once I notched up that first week, maybe even two weeks, that sort of urge or those feelings that I was getting where I needed to be gambling all the time, they'd sort of dwindled away and it allowed me to look in within myself a lot more and realise why I was actually gambling in the first place what sort of deficiencies I had and that sort of stuff. Yeah. So what did you find? What, what did you find in yourself that you were lacking that you sought through gambling? I think that I just, I had never associated gambling with being an escape before. And I was in that level of denial where I never thought that I was using it as an escape. I thought that it was a conscious choice that I was making because I thought that I was intelligent or um, of expert status. Um, I thought I was completely in control of it, but then I just, I realised pretty early on that I wasn't in, I'll never forget that first meeting that I went to where you read through the yellow book and the definition of a gambler and the fantasy world of a gambler and these sort of things. And I just remember being like, fuck, this book is also true. Um, and I just remember being shell-shocked by the emotion that I was feeling reading it. And I was like, oh, wow, I've never, I've never related to something so heavily in my life. Um, and we're only three pages in at this point. And I was just like in disbelief, shaking my head, being like, yeah, right, okay, I think I'm in the right place. And even though I was pushed to that initial meeting um, and I, I was attending it out of fear that my relationship was about to, I guess, implode, at that point I realised, yeah, okay, th this is the right place for me. And all the prejudice that I'd held, for Gamblers Anonymous meetings and other meetings as such, that it was dissipated pretty quickly. And in that room at the time, there were not, none of the people in there were like me at all. I didn't identify with any of them. There were 40 to 50-year-old men. There were kids similar age to me, but I wouldn't think that they would be in, the, I guess, my demographic of, of people. I didn't think that I would necessarily friend or hang out with any of these people outside of this meeting but at that moment I just remember feeling like I knew everyone really well which I thought was amazing and, and something that I'd never experienced before in any sort of group or setting. Yeah I think that's the identification really that you see somebody like you and understand from what they're saying yeah you can internalize that and know what it feels like 
yourself, yeah. Yeah. So how did things start to change for you? Slowly, I think they started changing in a couple of different ways. I obviously started committing to paying off the debt that I'd incurred. Um, so baby steps financially, things started changing. But I think where I noticed most of it was on like a personal growth sort of level. I mentioned previously that when I was um, in my peak or my prime of gambling, I was like, I'd become a very insecure individual. I was sort of a shadow of my, my usual confident self. So I started noticing just little things like my, my sense of humour come back. There was a lot of self-depreciation. By the time that my gambling spiralled out of control, that I didn't love myself at all. I thought that I was a failure and I didn't have much self-respect. And look, that didn't start coming back all that much at the start. But I think after maybe a month or so of being invested in the GA program and doing regular Zoom meetings, I was able to forgive myself for all the things that I'd done. And I think that that helped me start building on, I guess, finding that self-respect and that self-love again. There's still a bit of work to do there. But had I not committed to the program, I don't think I ever would have found that. I mean, I think that ultimately that self-loathing, that always putting yourself down, thinking that you're a failure is what brings you back to behaviours like gambling and that self-destruction because you, you think that that's what you need to be associating with. Yeah. So you mentioned going to online meetings. So how did you find the difference between face-to-face and online meetings? Oh, I didn't really find all that big of a difference, to be honest. I think because when this latest wave of COVID hit Melbourne, I was still very, very early on in my recovery. So I got equally as much out of jumping on a Zoom as I did a face-to-face. And I think the face-to-face meetings, it's a lot easier to be present um, and not get distracted. I always found that I was very captivated by everyone's shares face-to-face. They, were, they felt a lot more gripping, but I still get that same feeling in Zoom. I maybe just don't get it for everyone that speaks. But because I was very new to the program, as soon as I jumped on a Zoom meeting, I just knew that I had to be there. And it was the right place for me. Yeah. So what about getting help from others? Did you find that easy on through Zoom? Yeah, I found it easy to reach out to people via Zoom and slowly but surely, I remember like the first couple of weeks, I sort of mustered up the courage to ask people for their numbers and then I would start texting people every so often and sporadically. And yeah, I just thought that the more that I engaged in the program, I think that the more levelling engagement I got back from other members, the more that I was um, passionate in my shares, the more people that reached out and maybe were inspired by the things that I was saying or wanted to help me because they they saw something similar to them. I'm not sure. But, yeah, there was never any trouble. I think I've been um, a big advocate for the Zoom meetings. I've loved them. They've been really good. And I think that they've ultimately saved a few people's lives through these lockdowns. I can't think about how, um, how troubling it would be if we didn't have them. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Yeah. And plus it gives you the the ability to go across borders as well so there's no there's no limitation as to when and where you can attend which i think is a really good thing yeah exactly they um i have a friend actually that maybe about a month into my recovery this is one of my friends from when i was first gambling 15 16 18 years old 
and they started going through something on a personal level and by this stage I was a month in and feeling better about myself and I just saw like a lot of similarities between myself and them and I just said look knowing the things that you enjoy and um, I guess the patterns of your behavior why don't you just jump on this meeting with me tonight at eight o'clock and I guarantee you'll feel better afterwards and you don't have to make it um, a regular thing but just trust me and I think you'll feel better and now he's a regular on the meetings as well and it's just yeah it's good to say he's based in Sydney I'm in I'm in Melbourne but I guess I'm both united by the same thing yeah exactly yeah so sort of to take it back to your partner then how are they feeling with your you know with your change yeah really happy but something that I've, I've been observing lately is that I think that us gamblers who go through this GA program, our, our rate of recovery is quite rapid, especially at the start. You go from being in a really dark and torturous place, but then almost happy and positive within a couple of months. And whilst there's still plenty of work to do, whether it be financially or on a personal level, you just start seeing that life in people's faces again. And I think it was hard for my partner because I started improving so rapidly and my outlook on life became so different that it was hard for her to feel as optimistic about everything. I'd obviously left a huge pile of damage in, in my wake and there's still financial connotations attached to that and that sort of stuff becomes harder for, I guess, my partner to feel optimistic about. And so there's a lot of trust that needs to be built back in, in that respect. But definitely looking at me, it makes her happier because obviously I'm starting to become that person that she fell in love with again and that insecure, frustrated, angry, aggressive person that I was for a period of time has gone. And I think that that definitely makes her happy. Yeah. Has she thought about getting help herself? I've thrown the line out there. <laughs> um, it, it might be a little bit tricky. I think that, again, there's maybe a little bit of a stigma attached to a bit of an ego thing on her side. But um, maybe it'll come to that point where she goes through the GMON, um program, which I, I would be an advocate for her doing because I think that's exactly what it's there for. But, yeah, it's just it's, it's a hard thing. There's a part of me that think, feels like almost anyone that I know or any person would benefit from a program, whether it be GA, NA, AA. I think that the, you work out pretty quickly that, the gambling is not actually the issue that it's um it's it's us that are the issues and i guess the the gambling is just the by the means by which you get you end up there and i, I think that there'd be a lot of people that benefit from a similar program in one form or another and it would give them a lot of life skills or give them the ability to overcome obstacles without resorting to an escape because there's plenty of escapes out there that drugs gambling or alcohol and you can't really push that opinion onto people because unless you're an addict or unless you're going through addiction, I, I don't think that you'd get as much out of the programs as what we would. And maybe that's the case for my partner as well, maybe because she doesn't, I guess, ID herself as an addict. She would struggle to get the same out of the philosophies that you teach as what I would. Yeah, although, you know, there's... Programs for families of alcoholics, Alan and family groups. So um, in real terms, those avenues exist and, and people find a lot of benefit from them. So, yeah, it's not that strange in real terms. I, I guess the thing that 
in her case, because she wasn't aware of the extent of your gambling, she wasn't so involved. And I think it's that involvement that requires the recovery more than anything. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, where you're trying to stop someone from doing something. Yeah. And it's you set up that repeated pattern of trying to stop them. They don't stop and it's it, it's like the gambling. Trying to stop them is the escape. You're not addressing the problem. You're addressing the symptom. And, uh, yeah. Okay. If anybody would like to find out more about Gambles Anonymous, you can find them in Victoria on 0396966108 or you can go online at gaaustralia.org.au for more information about meetings or phone contacts throughout Australia. That's about all we've got time for today. So I'd like to thank Max for sharing his gambling recovery story with us and talking about how being a member of Gambles Anonymous helped him. Thanks, Max. Thanks, Matt. I hope you'll be able to join us again next week and we'll hear another personal recovery experience. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and stay tuned now for more Radical Radio on 3CR.